my coordination, all those kinds of things. Um, but be here tonight at 6.30 for that. So uh, we have a special guest uh, in the house today. Uh, my friend Simon is here from England over there. And, and his wife, his wife uh, Kira Lee, Lee Jones, is in the house too. And, and, uh, and so they've been at our house since, uh, since Friday. Um, do you guys want to hear a funny story about their oldest son, Malachi? Okay, funny story about Malachi. So um, they have three kids. We have two kids. So we got to put all the all their kids in one big room, and then all of my two kids in the other other, other room to sleep. So um, I walk past the room at night, kind of late at night, and I hear all this like um, these these three little cute British voices conversing in the room. And so I open the door and I and I say, "Hey, what are you guys talking about?" And Malachi, the oldest son, he's seven or eight, seven or eight, seven. He says, "Well, um, we're just having a conversation about." Um, whether or not you would throw your family into a volcano if, whether or not if you were given the choice between your family and a house, would you throw your house into a volcano or your family into a volcano? And I just went, okay. And I shut the door. And you know how British people like sound smarter than us? Well, this is proof that they actually are smarter than us because he's presenting like a real life moral dilemma to his siblings, right? Like, what would you do, right? And then I walk down the hall to my kids <laughs> and I open the door and I'm like, hey guys. And Landon's like, daddy, Sienna called me poopy. <laughs> so proof positive that... Brits are way more intelligent than we are over here in the U.S., as if you wondered about that, right? So, um, so there he He'll be joining us for Impact Camp uh, in a few, a couple of months, which is great. So, um, and if you don't already know, um, they've actually moved to Texas. They live in Texas now, and uh, they're going to be working in a church in Arlington. So, if anybody's going to like UT Arlington, go Mavs. That's my alma mater. Um, or TCU. Tanner's going to TCU, right? TCU, you'll be in the area. Um, they'll be at a church in Arlington. He's hoping to plant a church in Fort Worth at some point, so um, hopefully some of you guys can be a part of that at some point. So today, we are starting a new series um, in the book of Revelation. You guys excited about that? And uh, now I want to know, how many of you guys have actually read the book of Revelation before, all the way through? Nerds. Nerds. All right, were you confused? Were you confused? Very confused. I mean, there's a dragon in this book. A dragon, right? So it's a very confusing book. But the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the first three chapters, just the first three chapters, which are a little bit less confusing than the rest of the book. And a quick, quick quiz. Who wrote Revelation? John. Good. Now, harder question. Where was John when he wrote Revelation? Wait, what? I, I, I didn't hear. Someone said North Carolina, I think. Wait, where was he? Island of Patmos, right? Um, now, Patmos is off the coast of Turkey, which isn't that a strange name for a country? Turkey? Like, who was responsible for that? Like, let's just name it Turkey, right? So, uh... John was, listen, 
John was only one, he was the only one of the 12 disciples who was not killed for his faith. Now they attempted to kill him, and they did that by trying to burn him alive in hot oil. That's a bad day, right? So can you imagine that? You guys have, I know you guys don't really cook, your parents probably cook more than you do, but have you been like cooking something in hot oil on the stove, and it splatters, like just one little drop, and you're like, Screaming like a little schoolgirl, right? You're like, ah! And so imagine, this is John. This is not a funny matter, by the way. John dropped into hot oil. That's how they tried to kill him. And it, obviously they weren't successful because he ended up writing Revelation. But I'm thinking, like, how was that not successful? Like, how did he survive that? So we have to know this. John, John had to be like one big walking scar, right? When they try to kill him that way. So they attempt to kill him. They, they're unsuccessful at that. So instead of killing him, they send him to the Isle of Patmos off the coast of Turkey. While there, John has a vision. And from that vision, he writes the book of Revelation. And so in the first three chapters, John is told to address seven churches that are in kind of the western part of, of Turkey. And, um, and they're all clustered there. And so these churches have different personalities. Each church has a different kind of um, personality or a different kind of um, mindset. And so John has been told to write these letter, this letter of revelation to these different churches. And what I want you to um, get from this study the next few weeks is that as John begins to address and challenge each one of these churches and their particular version of sin, that we get challenged personally as we think about how our lives line up with each one of these churches. That's my goal for this series that as you see these churches addressed and challenged by John's words and Christ's words, that you're going to see yourself in these churches as we look at these things. So another reason that while we're doing this series is for, if you're a senior, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're a senior. A few seniors are here. So um, I always like to do a series at the end of the, fall, the spring semester that's really challenging you guys as you head out the door to graduation um, this, of course, is for everyone, not just the seniors, but it's for everyone. But I've got you in mind as we, as we study this, um, this part of Revelation. And the reason why is because much of Revelation is challenging these churches to be steadfast in their faith. And this is the kind of faith that's going to be required when you step out of these doors, um, go to wherever you're going to go. And if you've been here a while, you've heard me talk a lot about students after high school. I love my job. But there's a depressing part of my job when I see a student five, six, seven years after graduation, and I know they're no longer walking with Christ. That's the depressing part of my job. And as a pastor, I'm forced to ask the question, okay, what, I feel some responsibility. Like, did we not cover enough? Did we not talk about the right things? I know it's not my fault directly, but it's like I still bear responsibility as their pastor and as their shepherd. And so we want to challenge you. In these areas, and so I recently read a book a couple years ago called um, "You Lost Me," and this book really kind of shaped my understanding of some of these things. And uh, if you want to hit up at the top there, left the the X at the top of the screen, that way we don't have like moving crosses behind my images up here. There we go. Um, "You Lost Me" by David Kinnaman, and what he says in the book is that teens are some of the most religiously active people out there. So people your age, he says teens are some of the most religiously active in the church. 
but Americans in their 20s are some of the least religiously active. And something happens after the high school years where they just, they just shift. And so he says 59% of those that are raised in the church will at some point leave the church. And the question is, why does this happen? The thing he points to as to why this happens is that many people have a vague, shallow spirituality that he calls, ready, three big words, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Let's get the next slide up on the screen here. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Here's what he means by that. People have this idea of Christianity that um, it's, it's just moralism, it's just behavior, I just need to be a good person, it's just moralism. Therapeutic means that God exists for just me and my needs. He's like a cosmic therapist just for me. And then deism is the idea that God is like not a very specific God. He was kind of this vague, abstract deity. He's distant from us, and um, we can't really fully know him personally. And so this is the the brand of, of what he calls many people that are in the church. What they really ascribe to is not so much the gospel and Christianity and Jesus, but it's really moralistic, therapeutic deism. He defines it this way. God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise. He professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves and does not become too personally involved in the process. So um, many people grow up in the church, but never actually surrender their life to Christ. They have some vague notion, some vague idea of a God out there somewhere. But it's not necessarily the, the Jesus that we worship and that we know as we, as we talk about the gospel and Christianity. So um, these are people that see faith as just saying you believe in God. They say, you'll, they'll say things like, yeah, I believe that God exists. I believe there's a higher power out there. I believe that there's a God. I talked to a guy in New York City last year on a mission trip, a guy who was organizing games at the park that we're at, an older guy, college guy. And I said, so tell me like where you're at with your faith. Like, What do you believe? And he's like, I believe in God. And I was like, okay, and, and, you know, and it was like, you could just tell that, like, his idea of God was like, yeah, there's a being out there somewhere, as long as you have faith and some kind of a weird, abstract, vague faith, you, you sort of think in his direction that that means, like, you're going to heaven one day. And, and there are so many people, I think, that think this way. They, they see faith as just believing, saying you believe in God, that he exists. And I want to warn you this morning that this kind of faith is not going to last. This kind of faith is not rooted in the person and the work of Christ. It's not rooted in the gospel. It's not a faith that's going to last. So um, in this book, You Lost Me, he explains the many ways, the three ways mainly, that these 59% of people walk away from their faith. And here's how he breaks it down. The first group, he says, what he calls nomads. These are people that walk away from church engagement, but still consider themselves Christians. So they kind of pull out of church, but they still, they still say they're a Christian. They just kind of pull away from church engagement. Um, one example of this, I read a, a, a quote from Katy Perry recently. She says she still considers herself spiritual, but she thinks Christianity is too limiting. Here's her quote. She says, I still believe Jesus Christ is, is the Son of God, but I also believe in extraterrestrials. And that there are people who are sent from God to be messengers and all kinds of crazy stuff. I look up into the sky, all those stars and planets, the never-endingness. Is that a word? 
of the universe, every time I look up, I know I'm, I'm nothing, and there's something way beyond me. I don't think it's as simple as heaven and hell. So you see, right, this is an example, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Like I can just make up whatever I want to make up, and that's who I think God is. God's not very specific. He's sort of a vague, abstract idea. And as long as I think and sort of semi-pray in his direction, I'm good. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. The second kind of person that he talks about is um, what he calls prodigals. These are people that lose their faith, describing themselves as no longer Christian. Now, I'll be clear, we do not believe here that you can lose your salvation. This would be someone that would maybe said they were a Christian at one point, but now they say they're no longer a Christian. You can't lose your salvation. We don't believe that. But we do believe there are people that would say they're a Christian at one point, but that person, I would say, was never saved. If they can at some point say, I'm no longer a Christian. This is how we define that. So they might resent the church. They might resent Christianity. They've said things like, I'm never going back to church. They've moved on from Christianity. And in many cases, these kinds of people never come back and plug into the church and plug into their faith. The third kind of person he talks about are what he calls exiles. These are people that are still invested in the Christian faith, but they feel stuck between the culture and the church. This kind of person, I think, feels a lot of angst in the church. In fact, this kind of person on the surface can take their faith really seriously and be really serious about following Christ, but they just sort of pull out of church. You know why? Because they think the church doesn't do a very good job at engaging the culture. And many times they're right. Many times they're right. The the church is not very good at engaging our culture and not very good at answering the hard questions that our culture is raising. And so um, this person begins to pull out because they see the church as just kind of like some weird services, some fun and games, almost like a Christian country club for people that want to do fun things together, that have a like mindset. And they say, you know what, I want no part of that. I'm just going to pull out and have, have my own kind of individual faith my own way. And so they, they pull out of the church. And um, this is the kind of person that I think has a real hard time in youth groups like this. Because let's just admit, we all admit, right, the church is a weird place. The church is a weird place. It is a weird place. And if the church is a weird place, youth group is even worse, isn't it? I mean, I'm a pastor, and I'm just going to call it what it is. Like, youth groups can be weird places, really weird places. And this is the kind of person that has a real hard time in a youth group because they're like, man, I don't know, those people, that pastor, he's weird, you know? And they have a hard time plugging in because they just feel like it just seems kind of silly. I mean, they sing kind of silly games. They, they play silly games. They sing silly songs. They have a little devotional from the Word of God, and they call the Word of God. And, and, and they just, they don't, they, 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 it's almost like they're too, they, they take things so seriously that they can't ever just breathe and let the church kind of fail and be clumsy, right? And, and so they can't stand that, and so they pull out of the church because of it. They feel stuck between the culture and the church. And so um, some of you guys in this room, all of you guys in this room, you're going to be tempted to fall into one of these kinds of things. And I'll I'll challenge you this. If you're someone who is described by the last thing I I just described, the exile, then um, I want to just give you a warning this morning that um, we need people like you in the church. 
we need people like you that do take things seriously and you're passionate, you're zealous, like you want to see things done well, you want to see things done the right way, but at the same time, you can't be someone who is so self-righteous and arrogant that you abandon the church because of your angst. You can't take it in that direction. And so the church, it can be a weird place. In fact, I um, went to California last week with my wife and my family, went to a conference for um, part of it, and then the rest of it was kind of just a little spring break trip up to uh, Santa Barbara, which is really awesome and scenic. Um, and then all the smog in L.A. got me sick, so that happened too. Um, but while in L.A., um, I've never been to L.A. before, but I have a friend from high school. There was a girl that um, I knew from high school, and uh, there was, like, me and four other guys that were really close. And then she was, like, just for some reason the one girl that always hung out with us. Now, none of us ever dated. It wasn't weird like that. None of us ever dated her. It was just, like, she's just our friend. And uh, she was a part of our youth group. She was a part of mission trips. Um, always went to her house with her family. She came to our homes with our families, like, just a part of her life. And... Um, we kind of lost touch over once she moved away, but she went to L.A. She's actually been in a few commercials and some shows and whatnot, but she's trying to get into that world. And um, I, I knew just from traffic on Facebook and Instagram that she's probably just kind of walked away from her faith. But we had lunch with my family and her, and, uh, and at one point she just said, she's like, yeah, I don't really have, that's not my deal anymore. And um, we really couldn't get into the details of that. But, um, but just an example of someone who just totally disengaged from the church. I don't know what her reason was. I can't answer that question. But for some reason, she's just totally pulled out. And I'm guessing it's, it probably has to do with the third response here. I just can't take the church seriously. I just can't take it seriously. And so at some point, you guys are going to feel a pull towards one of these um, three different poles. And so with that in mind, I want you to go ahead and discuss your first two questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss questions one and two. All right, let's hone it back in for a minute, and then we'll have some more discussion here at the end. Um, I can always tell when people start throwing things, I assume you're done with your questions. So if you'll turn with me in Revelation chapter 1, and it's not Revelations, just like it's not Walmarts or the internets, it's single, it's Revelation. So Revelation chapter 1. And you might ask the question, why are we turning to Revelation for the series? Here's why we're turning to Revelation. One commentator, one writer says this. Go to my next slide. He says, and the suspense is killing us. There we go. The work of Revelation in its fullness is designed to pride the early church to patiently endure the persecution and struggles coming from within and without and to be prepared for the high cost of discipleship. In a culture antithetical, that means opposed, to the ideals of the gospel. So this is why we're looking at the book of Revelation. Now I am going to run through 20 verses. Can you guys handle that? Very quickly and have some discussion at the end here. So this is going to be like taking a drink of water from a fire hydrant. Are you ready to go with me? Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel 
to a servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So we're going to look at seven churches in this series. Um, We're not looking at any one of those today. We'll start with that next week. Seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us, that means to him, Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John is now, he has a vision of Jesus on this island. He's describing this vision um, to us in this first chapter of Revelation. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Verse 17. I want you to catch this before we go on to 17. So you've got this image of Jesus, right? Jesus appears to him, and John's describing this amazing, powerful picture of Jesus. Very descriptive. And if you saw that image, what do you think How would you respond to that image? So here's what John does in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, one thing with Revelation is that we almost never get told what things are. You're reading, you're like, what what is that? What does that mean? And here Jesus, at least once in the book, tells you, he says he's got... Um, seven golden lampstands or seven stars. The seven stars are 
Um, he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. So right out of the gate, Jesus gets specific and actually tells him, this is what this is, and this is what this is. Now I want you to latch on to a couple of passages, Revelation 1, verse 5, and we're going to look at two of these very quickly, and I want to pull some things from that. Revelation 1, 5, and here's what jumps out to me. It says, to him who loves us, him Jesus, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And I want you to watch this as we look at Revelation because it's very easy to look at Revelation and just get confused and say, I have no idea what kind of picture of Jesus we're supposed to be looking at here. But I want you to watch this. And this one little phrase, to him who loves us and has freed us. When you, when you hear those, those two words, what I think of is, think of it like this. We see a picture of sort of big picture, cosmic Jesus, King Jesus, who frees us legally. The judge who frees us from our sin. The judge who sets us free from our depravity. We see this big picture of Christ, this cosmic picture of Jesus, but we also see this kind of earthy picture of Jesus that he loves us in a personal way. That he not only frees us legally and sets us free from our sin, and we have right legal standing before God, that's called justification, but he also loves us relationally. And so you see in Revelation, in this first chapter, this big picture cosmic Jesus being described. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. He's referred to as a king. He's referred to as a judge. He's got bronze feet. He's got a glowing face. He's got white hair. He's got fire in his eyes. He is powerful Jesus. He is king Jesus. He is cosmic Jesus. But he's also personal Jesus. He also loves us. He cares for us. So it's cosmic Jesus, but also earthy Jesus that wants to be a part of our lives and in a relationship with us. The second place you see this concept is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So John sees that picture of Jesus, and he says, it was so overpowering to me, so amazing to me, I just fell over like I was dead. But then watch what Jesus does. In the middle of that scene, Jesus takes his hand and puts it on John's shoulder. And he says, fear not. He says, fear not. In the middle of that scene, cosmic Jesus is being described. Cosmic Christ, who is, who is all-powerful and all-knowing and big and supreme. In that moment where John falls over like he's dead, Jesus reaches over and touches him on the shoulder and says, fear not. Which, isn't that kind of a crazy statement? I mean, after the description we just read of that Jesus, and he's like, eh, don't be afraid. There's a sword coming out of your mouth, dude. Right? There's, there's your, eyes, your, your eyes are on fire. And I shouldn't fear. I shouldn't fear. And so we see again this picture of Cosmic Jesus and then earthy Jesus reaching out, touching him. And what I want you to see from this passage especially is that you and I have to see Jesus Christ as both personal 
and powerful. We have to see Jesus Christ as both personal and powerful. And I think the mistake that many of us fall into, it's not like you're really aware of it. It's not like you say, like, you know, I'm seeing Christ as more as this and as opposed. It's not like you're aware of it, but I think most of us in our upbringing and just where we're bent personality-wise, we tend to see Jesus as one or the other. You tend to see Christ as, if, you're, if you see Christ as all personal and not powerful, you will never take sin seriously. If you see him as all personal, you see Christ as, how, how I described before, moralistic, therapeutic deism. You just see him as, he's kind of a good luck charm. He's there when you need him. He's my buddy. He's my friend. It's all personal, not powerful. But some of you, and so if that's how you see him, you're never going to take sin seriously. You're never going to see him as the cosmic Christ, the judge, the king, supreme being, someone you're accountable to, someone who's ruling over everything. You'll never see him like that because he's just your, he's my homeboy. He's my little friend Jesus. But some of you, you see him as the opposite. You see Christ as not personal. You see him as only powerful. You see him as distant. You see him as just a deity, a vague abstract concept that you're not really sure about. And you don't see him in a personal way. You don't see that he really loves you. You don't see that he really wants to be a part of your life. You just see him as he's just there. He's distant. I'm not quite sure how I even need to relate to him. And so you have to get this. You have to understand that you've got to see Christ as both personal but also powerful. And if you try to separate these two ideas, you are not going to have a faith that's going to last. Your faith will not last if you don't understand that he is both personal and he is also powerful. Because, again, if you see him as just powerful, if you see him as just personal, you will never take your sin seriously. If you see him as just powerful, then you will never take his love seriously. You will never see him relate to you in that kind of way through your life. And so um, I, I recently read a, uh, a blog of a youth pastor who was talking about the problem of so many teens walking away from their faith when they leave high school. And he said that there are three big indicators for why someone, he thinks, walks away from their faith. And um, or actually, I'll take the back. He says there are actually three indicators for why someone stays a part of the church once they leave um, high school. And so the question he's asking is, what is it that sets apart the kids that stay in the church? And the first thing he says is that, real simply, the ones that stay a part of the church when they graduate high school, from what, he, what he's experienced, is that they're actually converted. They're actually truly believers. They've actually truly surrendered their life to Christ. And I've said this a lot as a pastor here, but you know where I stand on this, that so many people will come into the church, especially at your age, because they have to, because their parents make them come here. And And I love the fact that you're here. I want you here. I mean, if there's any place I want someone who's not a Christian yet to be, it's here. I'm not saying you shouldn't be here. I love the fact that you're here. But um, the, the problem, though, is what I have an issue with is people that pretend. I do have issue with that. So if you're here and you're like, man, Dave, I'm not a Christian yet, but I want to know what, you, what this is about. Now let's talk about it. I'm like, hey, let's, 
let's talk about this. I'm fine with you going off four years, and I'm not trying to put pressure on you. It has to be your decision, not my decision. But what I have a major issue with, though, is when people just come here and just pretend and just play a game called church. And so what happens is you convince yourself, you convince maybe me, convince your friends that you're truly a believer, but deep down you're like, I don't really believe all this. I don't really believe this stuff. And you kind of walk through not really ever converted to Christianity, not really ever converted to Christ, not really ever surrendered to him, and then walk out, and everyone's like, they were such a nice kid. What, what happened? And the reality is, we don't see phrases like that with Paul or John in the Gospels. Hey, he's such a nice guy. What happened? We don't see that. We see things like Paul saying, when you're saved, you're a new creation. You're transformed. Doesn't mean you don't sin, but you're transformed. You're a new creation. And so when someone's truly converted, like their life changes, like drastically transformed. And so the people that tend to stay in the church when they graduate are people that are actually truly converted and have put their life in the hands of Christ. The second kind of person, he says, is someone that has been equipped, not entertained. This does not mean that we don't do fun things here. But we value equipping you over entertaining you. This is why we do things like mission trips and impact and having upperclassmen lead small groups on Sunday evenings for many of the underclassmen because we want you doing ministry. Um, about four years ago, we did our last ski trip. And I love ski trips in a way, but I also kind of hate them because they don't really accomplish anything. And so we stopped doing that because, honestly, none of you were signing up for it. And I was like, praise God, right? Because I'm like, I'd much rather go get, you know, two buses and go to impact camp than have to struggle and strain to fill up just one bus to go to Colorado. I much prefer that. And so we, our desire here is to equip you, not to entertain you. The second thing that he says about people that don't walk away from their faith and leave high school is this, really important. Their parents preach the gospel to them. Their parents preach the gospel to them. Now, I know when you hear that, some of you are going, oh, man, my, my parents aren't Christians. My parents aren't believers. Or my parents, they say they're believers, but they sound kind of like what you're describing, that maybe they're not. And, and so you might be getting scared of thinking, like, well, I got two of the three, but, man, I'm doomed. Like, I'm doomed for failure now as a Christian. I'm not going to make it. Like, I'm not saying that because that's where the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ comes in. But I will say, yeah, it's going to be a struggle, but it's not, it's not impossible I've met plenty of students. This is a crazy thing about being a pastor. I've met so many students that I look at the student and go, how are you a Christian? Like your family's all jacked up. Like you've got no believers in your family, but somehow Christ snatched you up and he saved you. And so God does miracles. God does lots of miracles. But the reality is if, if you're someone who is not hearing it reinforced at home or you're seeing a hypocritical version of Christianity at home, then the chances might be greater that you might say, you know what, I don't have time for this. In fact, my friend Jenny in Los Angeles, I'd forgotten about this, but she came to church all the time with us. But I'd forgotten, though, 
that even though I would see her parents at her house a lot, I never once saw them in church, ever. And she reminded me, she said, yeah, Dave, remember, like, my parents never came. And she said, um, in fact, it was weird because they would say to me, like, are you going to church? And she's like, yeah, and like, you need to go to church. And, um, and she'd be like, well, isn't that kind of hypocritical? Like, y'all are telling me I should go to church, but y'all don't do anything about it. And so she grew up seeing this, like, weird thing, this hypocrisy of my parents are going to preach at me and say, like, I should go to church, but yet they're not going to participate in that with me. I mean, a kid that grows up that way is, has a greater chance of saying, you know what, um, they're seeing one thing at home, one thing at church, and those things are opposed to each other. And at some point, they're going to choose which one they believe. And many kids in that situation choose to believe what their parents taught them by their actions or their inaction. And this is what happens. Now, some students do the opposite and choose to believe and follow Christ in spite of what their parents do and what they don't do. This is how it works out in life. And so as we um, think through those ideas this morning, and as we kick off this series, I want to remind you, this is not a formula. This is not a three-step formula of, okay, got that, got that, got that. This is um, a challenge for challenging you guys to be aware of the many ways in which you can stumble and fall. Because I think if you're, if you're going to keep yourself, if you're going to not fall into these temptations, you've got to be aware of the many ways in which you could fall and be on the lookout for these things. So as we step into this series, we're going to be talking about these churches and the specific sins that John and Jesus, mainly Jesus, wants to warn them about um, as he writes the book of Revelation. So remember, Christ is king, he's a judge, but he also loves us, he is personal, he is both personal, and he's also powerful. I'm going to pray for you, and you guys can finish your discussion at your tables. Let's go ahead and pray. And we thank you for being a God who um, just reveals yourself in this incredible way in this first chapter of Revelation. We thank you that um, we get to see it, we thank you that we get to be a part of it, and, and see how you reach um, and, and speak to these churches in, uh, in this part of the world, Father. We pray that it will be meaningful for us as well. I pray I listen to your name. Amen. Go ahead and finish your discussion at your tables. You guys can leave after that.